as you're listening today, be aware we're going to do an altar call because I think we're going to find that we're going to get some revelation that maybe we didn't have before. So please don't ever be shy to come to the altar to, to bring your stuff and leave it for the Lord. Um, anyway, that's your heads up. We're going to do an altar call. And uh, if our commitment wasn't what our commitment should have been, that our commitment will be what it's supposed to be. All right? Okay, we're talking about holiness. This week, the perspective we're going to take on holiness is how holy, you know, does God expect me to be? And how holy, practically, can I be? Is it, is it really something to be attained to be holy as he is holy, for he is holy? Okay? So, my quick definition on holiness is, well, it's not just Pat's definition, it is, I guess, the definition, to be consecrated. To be consecrated is to be set apart. So those things where you wouldn't find God in his holiness, we shouldn't find ourselves, okay? Consecrated, set apart to his service, the service of God, and conformed in all things to the will of God. So set apart from anything worldly that's unholy, and conformed completely and fully to the will of God. And so, so often people struggle with, you know, I don't know what God's will is for my life. I, I just don't know, you know, is it this or is it this or is it that? If you struggle with that, then start with holiness. I promise you it's God's will for your life. If you never got past holiness, you'd be doing okay. All right, let's go to the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So last week we talked about the Great Commission doesn't say, go and be a disciple of the world. It says, go and make disciples of the world. And it says to teach them to observe all that I've commanded. To observe is more than to be aware of, right? I observe Keith. I'm aware of Keith. That is not the observation that Jesus is talking about in the Great Commission. The observation, when he says to observe these commands, teach him to observe these commands, he's, he's telling you and us as disciple makers and as disciples to do these things. Observe them in practice. Do these things that I've commanded you to do. Right? Observe. Do. Practice. Participate in. Observe. The person that is aware, right? There's so many people in the world. It's interesting. I never went to church my whole entire life, literally. I mean, twice to Sunday school and Catholic weddings. I was seven when I went to Sunday school. So I never went to church. I was never exposed to church. But I could recite the Lord's Prayer to some reasonable extent. I don't know really why that is. I understood, well, I knew things of Scripture, certain things. How it got on me beats me, maybe from watching a movie or a TV show. The point I'm making is I was aware. I was aware. I might, I wasn't, but a person in the church can be very aware. They can be even a student. They could be an interested party in the church. But none of those things are necessarily a disciple. Not an interested party. Could a disciple be an interested party? You bet. 
Can a disciple be a student? You bet. Is a student in and of themselves a disciple? Not necessarily. The call is to discipleship. So, let's look at discipleship. Luke 14. Now, this is... There's so many great gospel scriptures that speak to the call of discipleship. And before I read these to you, let me just make a statement. When I teach on this stuff, this this is the stuff that the Holy Spirit never lets off my mind. Never. When I'm praying for you, it's on my mind. When I'm praying for me, it's on my mind. When... I'm preparing a message for a Sunday. It's, it's, everything seems to boil down to this. Now, I don't know if it's because of my personality, because of my failure, or because God really, really wants us to be what his word says. So sometimes as I'm preparing a message and I'm like, man, I'm like the one-trick pony, the guy that won't talk about anything else. That it's like you beat this horse so hard, maybe everybody else is right. No, I'm not saying everybody else is different than me, but... I don't hear in our culture, and I don't hear in our society of the church, this message of being true to what Scripture says preached much. So I get this thought in my head. It's like, well, you know, maybe you're the guy that's over the top, and and, and you should preach about grace and, and all that. And as soon as I start having those thoughts, I'm telling you, Scriptures just start pounding my brain. And they're always the Scriptures that speak to what you're about to hear. So I really believe that it's the Holy Spirit and that it's compromised in the church and that he wants us to be how the word says. So I've taken this whole thought process one step further. Right? Sometimes I'll read scripture kind of with an ear towards something. Like knowing God is a thing that really lit up. The first time I read the New Testament, I don't know how many times, all of a sudden knowing God jumped out and bit me on the nose and now I see it everywhere. So I'm reading scriptures looking for where God gives grace in the context of compromise. Because that's the comeback. You know, you're all legalistic. You're just about works. And I'm like, all right, well, I just don't see where God gives grace to sin. Now, he gives grace in in, in the context of sin because we stumble. But he never, I don't think, intended grace for the purpose of stumbling. That we would set our standard less than what Scripture teaches because grace says we're going to stumble and God's okay because he knows we're just this flawed thing. I I haven't found it yet. It might be in there. If you already know where it's at, you can show me. But let me just preface these Scriptures that I'm going to read. Is I think he really means this when he says it. Okay? All right, here we go. Luke. 14, 26, and 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He is calling to you a place in your life for him that is so high that the place where you hold your parents, the place where you hold your siblings, the place where you hold your children needs to look like hate in comparison. That's the call to discipleship. And if you're not willing to place him in that spot, I don't think that the intent of grace is for that. I think if sometimes your kids become your idol and God falls to second place and the Holy Spirit shows you, and you repent, I think there's grace abounding for that. 
But if you say, God, I'm sorry, you got to sit in this chair and everything else that's important to me is going to sit in this chair, I don't think you're saved, to be quite honest with you. Okay, next one, Luke 14, 33. So then no one, excuse me, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. I'm studying that one. There's a bunch of scriptures that say, give up, rich young ruler. One thing you miss, take everything you have, sell it, give the money to the poor, come follow me. Now, I, I don't know. Every time I've heard that scripture taught, it's always you have to be prepared. If God asks for it, you've got to give it. And that may very well be the case. I don't know. But he's making a pretty strong statement there, isn't he? He's literally talking about his call to discipleship. So, the first order of being a disciple is to understand what disciple means. Right? What does it mean? It means a lot. It really means a lot. Let's take one second and, and just let those thoughts get into our minds and into our hearts. And let's contemplate a second if our perception is consistent with loving Jesus in a way that makes love for our dearest, closest blood relatives look like hate. If Jesus asked me for everything, would I give it to him? Okay. So if the first order of business of being a disciple is to understand the call of discipleship, then the second order of business is to decide whether or not you think you can actually do it. Right? If, if somebody said, hey, Pat, you know, would you like to try out for the track team? I said, sure, yep. You know, what does that mean? This means, well, you've got to run the mile. I said, great. Now, understand, in order to be a track guy on our team, you've got to run the mile in under five minutes. Okay, I should probably play field hockey or something, right? Because I can't do it. I just know that I cannot run a mile. Well, maybe if somebody was chasing me, I might. But I'd have to dive into the casket, like cross the finish line and just be done. Anyway, first order is to understand what does it truly mean to be a disciple. Commit ourselves to that. Second thing is to say, is it something that I can really do? And that's the gist of today's message, is to look at Scripture and come to a conclusion that says, I can't or I can. But if the conclusion you come to is that you can, then the objective needs to be holy, for he is holy. See, the lie, and it lives in the church, it lives in the culture, and it lives in the church, is that you can get saved, and then you will continue to sin. I don't know how many times I've heard salvation calls where someone is so hungry to get somebody to confess Christ, to see a hand go up. It's beautiful. I mean, it's like a massive payday if you're a preacher to see somebody actually repent and come to the Lord and follow it up with this thing to make it easier for them that says, now you're going to continue to sin. That's just how it is. But you gave your life to the Lord. Well, okay. But I don't know what give your life to the Lord means. Does give your life to the Lord mean that he gets Christmas and he gets Easter because I'm a busy guy? Or maybe I gave my life to the Lord and it means he gets Christmas and Easter and every Sunday. But Monday through Saturday, Lord, I got a job and I'm into this and I'm into that. And some of your stuff I don't understand. Or if I give my life to the Lord, did I give my life to the Lord? 
you hear me say this all the time, it's a, it's a big impression on me, is that we're dead people, that we literally died to ourselves. Our life is found in Christ. Jesus died to himself. He was found in God. Are we dead people? Are we alive people? Are we one foot in and one foot out? What's the call? And can we do it? It's honestly, it's such an important question. Uh, just last night I was thinking about Christians and our, and our Christian commitment. And I'm, listen, I don't want this to be a beat up. I'll get nice at the end, I promise. Because I'm speaking to myself. I've been studying this for a few weeks. And there's massive conviction because the Holy Spirit is showing me things about holiness that I might not be totally committed to. Parts of my life that the Lord may be asking for that I haven't yet surrendered. So I'm talking to myself as well as I'm talking to you. But I thought about a soldier, just some, you know, some guy who stumbled his way through high school, had no ambition in his life, and the only thing he could do, parents said, you're 18, you know, welcome to life, joins the army. So he goes to basic training, and he learns how to shoot a gun and carry a pack, and next thing you know, he's in Afghanistan, or he's, you know, in France or Germany in World War II, and him and his buddies are behind the dirt pile and, and the enemy's down across the field, and the boss or the you know lieutenant or whoever says go, and that guy gets up and he goes over the thing into the hail of bullets, knowing that the likelihood that ten percent of him and his pals is going to get to the other side of that field is pretty slim, and he does it. He does it. That's that's the kind of commitment I think the Lord is looking for from us. The good news for us is that he's already won the war, right? We're battling now against the lie, against the people that don't understand, not against the people, but against the force that influences the people that don't understand. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world, right? But that's the kind of commitment. When I think of that soldier and I think of myself, I'm not sure if I went up over that dirt pile into the mess, the mess of giving, the mess of surrendering, like he did into the mess of bullets that he ran himself into because it was his duty. So how holy can I be? Can I live a holy life? Let me ask you some questions. And you don't have to raise your hands. I'll raise for you. Did you ever tell a lie before you were saved? I did. Have I ever told a lie since I've been saved? Maybe. Did I ever not tell a lie since I've been saved when I wanted to? Yes. What happened? Something happened. Or steal something. You ever steal anything? I used, to, I used to be the thief's thief when I was in the business world. I rationalized it and I justified it, but I stole on my expense report. Every time I turned in an expense report, there was extra in there for me. I just did it. I said it was okay. It wasn't okay. It was stealing. I remember the first time after I got saved, I was filling out an expense report. I'm like, okay, I didn't eat lunch this day, but I was on the road. So I put a lunch down. 15, 16 bucks, whatever it was. And I had this something come over me that was like, what are you doing? Never, I never had a conscious thought that that, I mean, I, I knew it was wrong, but I rationalized it. I couldn't rationalize past the conviction because I had a different spirit. I took it off there. I'm like, wow, this is going to be expensive. You give money, but you don't steal money. That's a double whammy. <laughs> but it was true. I haven't stolen anything, not that I'm conscious of. Since that day, since that very moment. My point is this. If your thought is that holy, for he is holy, is not an attainable 
objective. Which sin is it? Because my sin used to be stealing. My sin used to be telling a lie. My sin used to be who knows what all else. I, I mean, I could confess a million to you that aren't sins in my life anymore. When the temptation comes, I just say no. And the more I've learned to say no, and the more I've learned to capture and hold every thought accountable to Jesus, the less and less the thoughts even come because there's no place for them in there. So my question is, if you don't believe that you can be holy for he is holy, then what sin is it that's impossible that you can't get over? Which one is it? Is it pornography? Is it adultery? Is it lying? Is it stealing? Is it, I don't know what it is. But which one is it? Because you have been delivered from sin. You have testimony that you can share that says, I was like this and now I'm not. If there's an area where you're still like this and you're conscious of it, then the Holy Spirit is asking you to surrender it. And if you think you can't surrender it, how did you get loose of the other ones? Now, some might be easier than others, but I don't think there's any that can't be gotten loose of. So your homework last week was to read Romans chapter 6. We're going to read Romans chapter 6 together, but we're going to stop in different places. Let's start. Verse 1 through 7. Okay. Now, hang on a minute. Scripture is God-breathed, right? It's absolutely, it's, it's good for, I can't remember the Scripture that tells you all the things it's good for. Anything you need, Scripture is good for it. It's absolutely true. It is God speaking to us. It's not Paul's opinion. Whether Paul thought it was his opinion when he wrote the letter or not, my guess is he didn't. He was a vehicle, a vessel of the Lord with a pen in his hand, and God put the words down. Okay? This is God speaking to us, not Paul. God through Paul. All right. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? See, the Roman church must have gotten this idea. If you, if you were reading the end of chapter 5, well, if God gets glory in grace and where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, we should just go sin. And all this grace will come and God will get glory. And Paul's like, you've got to be kidding me. No, stop. Okay. <laughs> Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection." Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Where's your old self? It's crucified. What are you? A dead guy or a girl. Crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is free from sin. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? It's a question. God's asking us. You're dead to sin. See, before you died to sin, before you confessed Jesus, before you called him Lord, which meant that you put aside your will and you picked up his, you were a slave to sin. The one you submit yourself to is your master. We call Jesus Lord. 
We have literally died to sin. We've died to its power. We've died to, well, we maybe haven't died to its influence. That might be overstating. But we've certainly died to its power. Our old self was crucified with him. Our body of sin has been done away with that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Verses 8 through 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves. If you think that you're alive to sin, repent. Change your mind. Think differently. You're under the influence of a lie. If you think, if you're born again and you think that you're alive to sin, you're under the influence of a lie because you are not alive to sin. You are dead to sin. Okay? Repent. Think different. When you have that thought, think a different thought. Think the thought that says, I'm dead to sin. I'm not alive to sin. It has no overwhelming power over me. I am alive to Christ. Verses 12 through 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Look at the... Second, third, and fourth word at the top there. Do not let. You could let it, or you don't have to let it. If it, if it. if it was master over you, if it had a control over you, you wouldn't have the option of letting it. It sounds so silly, but when you start, I mean, and probably a bunch of you are. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to put myself on a pedestal, but I, but I have experience because sin wants to be my boss. But I don't let it. Most of the time. Sometimes I slip. But most of the time I don't let it. And I don't let it because I have power inside of me that's greater than sin. So when he says don't let it, he means it. Just don't let it. Somebody says, oh, I'm struggling with this. Pray for him, help him, but say don't let it. Don't do that anymore. If you're telling lies, quit telling lies. You don't have to. Now there's consequences. Don't put yourself in a position where you need to feel like you got to tell a lie. Otherwise, the consequences of your actions are going to be worse. Don't put yourself in that spot. But if you are in that spot, don't compound the problem by lying because you might fool that person, but God knows. And he can't bless you in a lie. Do not let. means I have control. Present yourselves and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Remember Romans 12, 1 and 2 last week? I'll read it for you again later today. It says that we're to be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. That myself, my thoughts, my physical body, my actions, my endeavors, I submit them. I, I put them on the altar of righteousness because I can. That's what this is for now. For again, sin shall not be master over me. Verses 15 through 19. What then? 
Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that through you, or excuse me, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. But just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. We'll talk about sanctification next week. Obedience resulting in righteousness. See, if we obey God's commands, Jesus said, teach them, teaching them to observe all these things that I've commanded you. We will walk in righteousness, obedience leading to righteousness. We're still slaves, right? We just got a new master. We used to be a slave to sin. Now we're a slave to righteousness. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and he said, your father, the devil, right? Well, the devil's not our daddy anymore. God's our father. We're adopted. We're grafted in. We're his children for his purposes, Verses 20 through 23. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? Let me just stop right there. See, there's no benefit in sin. It feels like it sometimes. Like the benefit of the lie I told was I didn't have the consequence for the action that I did. But guess what? There was no benefit in that. Eternally, you're going to pay. If you're going to be a sinner, if you're not going to be submitted to Jesus... There's benefit in righteousness and truth and honor, but not in sin. For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, Freed from slin, 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 say that, slin, sin, and enslaved to God. It's the paradigm that we really have to get. We're dead people to ourselves. We're slaves to God. We traded however many years. Now, I, I was 40 or 41 when I got saved. Prayed the prayer probably 10 times since then, just to be sure. I mean, as recent as three months ago. Lord, I'm not so sure. Praying for people. Not seeing some of these things? Let's just be sure. You are my Lord. I do believe. I don't know. Lots of times for me. Just being sure. Okay? But we have to change the way we think. Repent in our minds. If we perceive ourselves as Lord, it's going to be so hard to try to walk the way we're supposed to walk. But if we just commit in our minds that we understand that we aren't ours anymore. If we get... 80 years or 100 years or 50 years here in this natural life, we're going to do eternity that will never, ever end. How we do it now determines how it will be then. Not just up or down, not just with God or absent from God, but the level, the treasure in heaven, the, the, I don't know, I'm, I'm afraid I'm stepping beyond what I really know. 
But there's a reward for walking in holiness and obedience to God. When he asks you to do something and you do it, you're storing up treasure. This has become so apparent to me with the death of my mom and my aunt. If I, if I said this last week, forgive me, but every earthly thing that my aunt owned was under the roof of her house. And she took none of it with her. It was all there. And the lady that was managing her estate said, anything you want, just take it. You know what I took out of there? I took two 12-packs of Diet Coke, family pictures, and the rest was junk. Everything she'd accumulated, bless her heart, but God says, don't, don't make your treasure be those things that the moth is going to eat, that's going to rust up and, and just turn into nothing. Store treasure in heaven. So I believe that the reward in heaven will not be the same for every person that goes to heaven. It'll be based upon those things that we did not. We were prepared for good works to be done in Christ Jesus from the foundations of this world. We have to repent. We have to constantly battle that thought that we're the center of our world. We're not. We traded this one for that one. So now here's, here's the grace part of this message. I read Romans 6 and other scriptures, but Romans 6, man, just slams at home. And there is nothing that would tell me that I'm a slave to sin, that I don't have the ability to overcome any sin in my life. I don't believe it. Sin does not reign over me. Sin doesn't reign over you if you're born again. I absolutely believe it. If you disagree with me, I don't want to, I won't argue with you, but I want to know why you think that because one of us needs to think differently. Sin is not our master anymore. So then why do I continue to sin? Well, pretty much I don't, at least that I'm aware of, but sometimes I do. Sometimes I stumble. The point for us is that the bar needs to be you shall be holy for I am holy. I, in this context, is God, not Pat. You shall be holy for I am holy. That's the bar. The bar is not welcome, welcome to the church. You prayed the prayer. You know, do the best you can. And it's okay if you live in your flesh. That's not the bar. The bar is up here. Recognize where it is. Understand from what this teaching shows us in Romans chapter 6 that it's attainable. Next Sunday, we'll talk about sanctification. We'll talk about the process. Remember the, th- the three-letter word that's your part in this whole process, right? Y-E-S, right? And God shows you something, you say yes, and then you allow him to work in you to change those things. Might be a short sermon now. That was the gist of it. Um, so you don't have to sin, but you might. When you do, there's grace, not for the mind that says, I'll do what I want and God will be okay with it. But for the person that stumbles, whose mind says, Lord, I want to be holy for you or holy. And when it happens, confess it. Lord, I told a lie. I'm sorry. Help me to repent. You're good to go. Don't worry about it. Don't let the devil keep you in a bad place. God is graceful. Word says in Hebrews that... Because Jesus has been tested in every way that will ever be tested, that that has been tempted in every way that we're going to be tempted, that when we find ourselves in that place, we can approach the throne of grace and find compassion and mercy, kindness. It's kindness that leads to repentance. So when you see your brother in a sin, it's like, brother, oh my goodness, can I help you with that? You don't condemn him. 
oh man, you're spending your eternity in hell because you did that and God doesn't like that. No, because that's not going to bring repentance. We're to restore someone in a spirit of gentleness to repentance. Help them. Come alongside them. Sow into that so that if you stumble, someone will sow that same thing into you, not condemnation. Okay. Romans 12.1. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. See, some are interested parties. Some are students. There's attenders and there's pretenders. But we're called to be disciples. And a disciple is committed to the purpose of offering themselves a living and holy sacrifice to God. Our person, our thoughts, our actions, our flesh. Ooh, I hate my flesh. My flesh is like, my old man is dead. It says so in scripture, but sometimes he sure doesn't act like it. Living and holy sacrifices. That's what we're going to come to the offer today. To be a pretender, an attender, an interested party, even a student doesn't cost very much. It's cheap. You come on a Sunday morning. You come on Christmas or Easter. You say a prayer once in a while. It doesn't cost much, but it really has almost no reward. To be a disciple costs, and the cost is everything. It's everything. It's you cannot be my disciple unless it costs everything. But the reward for the disciple is that someday you're going to hear the voice of God say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter into your master's joy. See, as a disciple, that's what I want to hear. (laughs) The alternative to that is to stand before our Lord. Well, he wouldn't have been our Lord in that case, but to stand there and have him say, you can't come in, I never knew you. And you say, but Lord, didn't I prophesy and do all these things in your name? He'll say, away from me, you doer of iniquity, I never knew you. And the opportunity for heaven is done. It's gone. There is no chance. Once he says no, You can't go and spend a minute in hell and repent. You can't go and spend a minute in hell and mean it. Even if you do, it doesn't buy you anything. It's only now. Only now that through faith we can please God. It's only now that we can walk holy as he's holy, that we can show him that his sacrifice meant something to us. It's only now. It can't be any time other than now. And praise God that he's merciful and praise God that he's graceful. Because if our heart is his, his grace and his mercy abounds. But if we're pretenders, like the one that he tells us about, that he never knew, you aren't going to find mercy. You're not going to find grace. So for anybody... 
And you're going to find that, I, I know some of you have been, are, are, have been Christians, holy as he's holy for longer than I've been saved. I mean, I understand that. But all of us can get to a higher place of surrender. Don't sweat what he hasn't shown you because you don't know it. Sweat what you know and work with God to be holy as he's holy because only then are we the city that he can place on a hill. Are we the lit, bright lamp that nobody would put a basket over? If your concept of your call was less than what you know it to be today, I invite you to come forward and thank God for that revelation. I invite you to come forward and ask for the anointing and the presence of his spirit and all of his resources in your life to get you to that place. And I invite you to say, God, I offer myself a living and holy sacrifice acceptable unto you. In Jesus' name. And I'll be the first one down.